Chapter 33 of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter 33 Without the Walled City. The Slope of the Years. The immediate result of this was nothing. Results from such things are usually long and growing. Morning brings a change of feeling. The existent condition invariably pleads for itself. It is only at odd moments that we get glimpses of the misery of things. The heart understands when it is confronted with contrasts. Take them away and the ache subsides. Carrie went on, leading much this same life for six months thereafter, or more. She did not see Ames any more. He called once upon the Vances, but she only heard about it through the young wife. Then he went west, and there was a gradual subsidence of whatever personal attraction had existed. The mental effect of the thing had not gone, however, and never would entirely. She had an ideal to contrast men by, particularly men close to her. During all this time, a period rapidly approaching three years, Hurstwood had been moving along in an even path. There was no apparent slope downward, and distinctly none upward, so far as the casual observer might have seen. But psychologically there was a change, which was marked enough to suggest the future very distinctly indeed. This was in the mere matter of the halt his career had received when he departed from Chicago. A man's fortune or material progress is very much the same as his bodily growth. Either he is growing stronger, healthier, wiser, as the youth approaching manhood, or he is growing weaker, older, less incisive mentally as the man approaching old age. There are no other states. Frequently there is a period between the cessation of youthful accretion and the setting in, in the case of the middle-aged man, of the tendency toward decay when two processes are almost perfectly balanced and there is little doing in either direction. Given time enough, however, the balance has become a sagging to the graveside. Slowly at first, then with a modest momentum, and at last the graveward process is in full swing. So it is, frequently, with man's fortune. If its process of accretion is never halted, if the balancing stage is never reached, there will be no toppling. Rich men are, frequently, in these days, saved from this disillusion of their fortune by their ability to hire younger brains. These younger brains look upon the interests of the fortune as their own, and so steady and direct its progress. If each individual were left absolutely to the care of his own interests, and were given time enough in which to grow exceedingly old, his fortune would pass as his strength and will. He and his would be utterly dissolved and scattered under the four winds of the heavens. But now see wherein the parallel changes. A fortune, like a man, is an organism which draws to itself other minds and other strength than that inherent in the founder. 
Beside the young minds drawn to it by salaries, it becomes allied with young forces, which make for its existence even when the strength and wisdom of the founder are fading. It may be conserved by the growth of a community or of a state. It may be involved in providing something for which there is a growing demand. This removes it at once beyond the special care of the founder. It needs not so much foresight now as direction. The man wanes, the need continues or grows, and the fortune, fallen into whose hands it may, continues. Hence, some men never recognize the turning in the tide of their abilities. It is only in chance cases, where a fortune or a state of success is wrested from them, that the lack of ability to do as they did formerly becomes apparent. Hurstwood, set down under new conditions, was in a position to see that he was no longer young. If he did not, it was due wholly to the fact that his state was so well balanced that an absolute change for the worse did not show. Not trained to reason or introspect himself, he could not analyze the change that was taking place in his mind, and hence his body, but he felt the depression of it. Constant comparison between his old state and his new showed a balance for the worse, which produced a constant state of gloom, or at least depression. Now it has been shown experimentally that a constantly subdued frame of mind produces certain poisons in the blood, called catastates, just as virtuous feelings of pleasure and delight produce helpful chemicals called anastates. The poisons generated by remorse inveigh against the system, and eventually produce marked physical deterioration. To these, Hurstwood was subject. In the course of time, it told upon his temper. His eye no longer possessed that buoyant, searching shrewdness which had characterized it in Adam Street. His step was not as sharp and firm. He was given to thinking, thinking, thinking. The new friends he made were not celebrities. They were of a cheaper, a slightly more sensual and cruder grade. He could not possibly take the pleasure in this company that he had in that of those fine frequenters in the Chicago resort. He was left to brood. Slowly, exceedingly slowly, his desire to greet, conciliate, and make at home these people who visited the Warren Street place passed from him. More and more slowly, the significance of the realm he had left began to be clear. It did not seem so wonderful to be in it when he was in it. It had seemed very easy for anyone to get up there and have ample raiment and money to spend, but now that he was out of it, how far off it became. He began to see as one sees a city with a wall about it. Men were posted at the gates. You could not get in. Those inside did not care to come out to see who you were. They were so merry inside that all those outside were forgotten, and he was on the outside. Each day he could read in the evening papers of the doings within this walled city. In the notices of passengers for Europe he read the names of eminent frequenters of his old resort. In the theatrical column appeared, from time to time, announcements of the latest successes of men he had known. 
He knew that they were at their old gaieties. Pullmans were hauling them to and fro about the land. Papers were greeting them with interesting mentions. The elegant lobbies of hotels and the glow of polished dining rooms were keeping them close within the walled city. Men whom he had known, men whom he had tipped glasses with, rich men, and he was forgotten. Who was Mr. Wheeler? What was the Warren Street Resort? Bah! If one thinks that such thoughts do not come to so common a type of mind, that such feelings require a higher mental development, I would urge for their consideration the fact that it is the higher mental development that does away with such thoughts. It is the higher mental development which induces philosophy and that fortitude which refuses to dwell upon such things, refuses to be made to suffer by their consideration. The common type of mind is exceedingly keen on all matters which relate to its physical welfare, exceedingly keen. It is the unintellectual miser who sweats blood at the loss of a hundred dollars. It is the Epictetus who smiles when the last vestige of physical welfare is removed. The time came, in the third year, when this thinking began to produce results in the Warren Street place. The tide of patronage dropped a little below what it had been at its best since he had been there. This irritated and worried him. There came a night when he confessed to Carrie that the business was not doing as well this month as it had the month before. This was in lieu of certain suggestions she had made concerning little things she wanted to buy. She had not failed to notice that he did not seem to consult her about buying clothes for himself. For the first time it struck her as a ruse, or that he said it so that she would not think of asking for things. Her reply was mild enough but her thoughts were rebellious. He was not looking after her at all. She was depending for her enjoyment upon the Vances. And now the latter announced that they were going away. It was approaching spring, and they were going north. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Vance to Carrie. We think we might as well give up the flat and store our things. We'll be gone for the summer, and it would be a useless expense. I think we'll settle a little farther downtown when we come back. Carrie heard this with genuine sorrow. She had enjoyed Mrs. Vance's companionship so much. There was no one else in the house whom she knew. Again, she would be all alone. Hurstwood's gloom over the slight decrease in profits and the departure of the Vance's came together. So Carrie had loneliness and this mood of her husband to enjoy at the same time. It was a grievous thing. She became restless and dissatisfied, not exactly as she thought with Hurstwood, but with life. What was it? A very dull round indeed. What did she have? Nothing but this narrow little flat. The Vances could travel, and they could do the things worth doing, and here she was. For what was she made, anyhow? More thought followed, and then tears. Tears seemed justified, and the only relief in the world. For another period this state continued, the twain leading a rather monotonous life, and then there was a slight change for the worse. One evening, Hurstwood, after thinking about a way to modify Carrie's desire for clothes and the general strain upon his ability to provide, 
said, I don't think I'll ever be able to do much with Shaughnessy. What's the matter? said Carrie. Oh, he's a slow, greedy mick. He won't agree to anything to improve the place, and it won't ever pay without it. Can't you make him? No, I've tried. The only thing I can see, if I want to improve, is to get hold of a place of my own. Why don't you? said Carrie. Well, all I have is tied up in there just now. If I had a chance to save a while, I think I could open a place that would give us plenty of money. Can't we save? said Carrie. We might try it, he suggested. I've been thinking that if we'd take a smaller flat downtown and live economically for a year, I would have enough, with what I've invested, to open a good place. Then we could arrange to live as you want to. It would suit me all right, said Carrie, who, nevertheless, felt badly to think it had come to this. Talk of a smaller flat sounded like poverty. There are lots of nice little flats down around 6th Avenue, below 14th Street. We might get one down there. I'll look at them if you say so, said Carrie. I think I could break away from this fellow inside of a year, said Hurstwood. Nothing will ever come of this arrangement as it's going on now. I'll look around, said Carrie, observing that the proposed change seemed to be a serious thing with him. The upshot of this was that the change was eventually effected, not without great gloom on the part of Carrie. It really affected her more seriously than anything that had yet happened. She began to look upon Hurstwood wholly as a man, and not as a lover or husband. She felt thoroughly bound to him as a wife, and that her lot was cast with his, whatever it might be but she began to see that he was gloomy and taciturn, not a young, strong, and buoyant man. He looked a little bit old to her about the eyes and mouth now, and there were other things which placed him in his true rank, so far as her estimation was concerned. She began to feel that she had made a mistake. Incidentally, she also began to recall the fact that he had practically forced her to flee with him. The new flat was located on 13th Street, a half block west of 6th Avenue, and contained only four rooms. The new neighborhood did not appeal to Carrie as much. There were no trees here, no west view of the river. The street was solidly built up. There were twelve families here, respectable enough, but nothing like the Vance's. Richer people required more space. Being left alone in this little place, Carrie did without a girl. She made it charming enough, but could not make it delight her. Hurstwood was not inwardly pleased to think that they should have to modify their state, but he argued that he could do nothing. He must put the best face on it, and let it go at that. He tried to show Carrie that there was no cause for financial alarm, but only congratulation over the chance that he would have at the end of the year by taking her rather more frequently to the theater and by providing a liberal table. This was for the time only. He was getting in the frame of mind where he wanted principally to be alone and to be allowed to think. The disease of brooding was beginning to claim him as a victim. Only the newspapers and his own thoughts were worthwhile. The delight of love had again slipped away. 
It was a case of live now, making the best you can out of a very commonplace station in life. The road downward has but few landings and level places. The very state of his mind, superinduced by his condition, caused the breach to widen between him and his partner. At last that individual began to wish that Hurstwood was out of it. It so happened, however, that a real estate deal on the part of the owner of the land arranged things even more effectually than ill-will could have schemed. "'Did you see that?' said Shaughnessy one morning to Hurstwood, pointing to the real estate column in a copy of the Herald, which he held. "'No, what is it?' said Hurstwood, looking down the item of news. "'The man who owns this ground has sold it.' "'You don't say so,' said Hurstwood." He looked, and there was the notice. Mr. August Veal had yesterday registered the transfer of the lot, 25 by 75 feet, at the corner of Warren and Hudson Streets, to J. F. Slosson for the sum of $57,000. Our lease expires when? asked Hurstwood, thinking. Next February, isn't it? That's right, said Shaughnessy. It doesn't say what the new man's going to do with it remarked Hurstwood, looking back to the paper. "'We'll hear, I guess, soon enough,' said Shaughnessy. Sure enough, it did develop. Mr. Slosson owned the property adjoining and was going to put up a modern office building. The present one was to be torn down. It would take probably a year and a half to complete the other one. All these things developed by degrees, and Hurstwood began to ponder over what would become of the saloon. One day he spoke about it to his partner. "'Do you think it would be worthwhile to open up somewhere else in the neighborhood?' "'What would be the use?' said Shaughnessy. "'We couldn't get another corner around here.' "'It wouldn't pay anywhere else, do you think?' "'I wouldn't try it,' said the other. The approaching change now took on a most serious aspect to Hurstwood. Disillusion meant the loss of his thousand dollars, and he could not save another thousand in the time. He understood that Shaughnessy was merely tired of the arrangement, and would probably lease the new corner, when completed, alone. He began to worry about the necessity of a new connection, and to see impending serious financial straits unless something turned up. This left him in no mood to enjoy his flat, or carry, and consequently the depression invaded that quarter. Meanwhile, he took such time as he could to look about, but opportunities were not numerous. More, he had not the same impressive personality which he had when he first came to New York. Bad thoughts had put a shade into his eyes, which did not impress others favorably. Neither had he thirteen hundred dollars in hand to talk with. About a month later, finding that he had not made any progress, Shaughnessy reported definitely that Slosson would not extend the lease. "'I guess this thing's got to come to an end,' he said, affecting an air of concern. "'Well, if it has, it has,' answered Hurstwood grimly. He would not give the other a key to his opinions, whatever they were. He should not have the satisfaction.' A day or two later, he saw that he must say something to Carey. "'You know,' he said, "'I think I'm going to get the worst of my deal down here.' "'How is that?' 
asked Carrie in astonishment. Well, the man who owns the ground has sold it, and the new owner won't release it to us. The business may come to an end. Can't you start somewhere else? There doesn't seem to be any place. Shaughnessy doesn't want to. Do you lose what you put in? Yes, said Hurstwood, whose face was a study. Oh, isn't that too bad? said Carrie. It's a trick, said Hurstwood, that's all. They'll start another place there, all right. Carrie looked at him and gathered from his whole demeanor what it meant. It was serious, very serious. Do you think you can get something else? she ventured timidly. Hurstwood thought a while. It was all up with the bluff about money and investment. She could see now that he was broke. I don't know, he said solemnly. I can try. End of chapter 33 Recording by Roger Moline